Welcome once again to the wonderful Washington Hour Home Podcast. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. Today we'll be looking at the story of Bud Holland, notorious Air Force Colonel, B-52 pilot, maker of bad decisions, meticulous keeper of swimming pools, and my former next-door neighbor. On June 24, 1994, Bud Holland crashed one of the biggest, most powerful aircraft ever built in the history of mankind, sending up a fireball that darkened the sky, leaving his kids fatherless, his wife a widow, and taking three members of his flight crew with him. Some people call it a tragic culmination of circumstances that took the life of one of our country's bravest. Many others call it an inevitable disaster caused by a murderer bent on self-destruction. Was Bud Holland an American hero or an arrogant hot stick? Strong words and strong feelings, even decades later, as you'll see from some of the comments. And we look at all of them in this episode of Washington, Our Home. June 24th, 2014, I wrote a blog article because I saw a This Date in Washington History post from a website called HistoryLink about the 20-year anniversary of a B-52 crash at Fairchild Air Force Base near Spokane. I remembered that event with vivid detail for two reasons. First, since I was a news producer at KXLY Radio at the time, it was the only story we covered for about a week. And second, as it turned out, the ill-fated pilot of that B-52 was none other than my next-door neighbor. In the blog post, I tried to relate a picture of the man that many would-be aviation historians and online commenters failed to see, that of a husband, loving father, and good neighbor. The Internet, it seems, didn't care much about that aspect of the man, preferring to view him in singularly evil terms, as you'll soon hear from the comments. <laughs> Alan Bud Holland was born September 7, 1947, in Suffolk, Virginia. He was the son of Arthur Leroy and Virginia Holland, and he attended Campbell University, Buells Creek, North Carolina, where he was a cadet in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC. He received a commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force Reserve in January 1971. Now, keep in mind that America's involvement in Vietnam had been steadily growing since 1955 and was just four years shy of reaching its official end. Tensions in America were hot, and there weren't a lot of young men running to sign up for military service. Even though he still could have been drafted all the way up until the draft was canceled January 27, 1973, Holland showed up voluntarily. That's some kind of dedication in my book. As the years went by, Holland rose through the ranks, became a pilot, married his wife, Sarah Ann, and had two daughters, Heather Lee Holland and Mary Margaret Holland, who went by Meg. By the time I met the family in 1988 or 89, Bud was a lieutenant colonel stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane. His older daughter was just a year or two behind me in school, and I think Meg was about my younger brother's age. Being adolescent boys, it didn't take long for us to develop crushes on those two, and we were soon spending our summers swimming in the neighborhood pool just behind our houses. Bud was actually responsible for the pool maintenance, and dutifully removed the cover and checked the pH levels every summer morning, and replaced the cover each night when it got dark. I remember watching him go through that routine every day, and wondering why someone with his level of responsibility 
both professional and personal, would take the time to care for the community pool twice a day. Much later, as an adult, it made more sense to me that was no doubt part of his downtime, the time when he could be alone and uninterrupted for half an hour twice a day. As a married father of three myself, I completely understand the value in that, whether it be mowing the lawn, repairing a vehicle, or even cleaning the garage. It's why I can look back and respect the man when he decided to turn over care of the pool to me. Not at the time, of course, I was just a selfish kid who needed a job. But for whatever reason, shortly before the accident, he decided to hand over that pool responsibility, his downtime, to me. He showed me how to check the levels with a funky set of vials and powders. He warned me about keeping the ponderosa pine needles out of the pool drains and skimming off the dead bugs before the day started. He helped me learn to roll and unroll the cover that was made of something like thick bubble wrap, and he taught me how to use the Polaris underwater vacuum cleaner to keep the bottom free of debris. Everything I know today about pools is thanks to Bud Holland. We had a basketball hoop in our driveway, and Heather and Meg would often join my brother and I for a game of horse or around the world. One evening in particular, I remember Bud coming over to collect his girls before their family headed out to eat. He'd somehow injured his forearm in some frightening way, and it was held together by this plastic medical brace with dozens of metal pins punching through his skin and screwed into his bones. It was terrifying to look at, but the man acted like it was an everyday occurrence. He was always nice to us boys, nicer than I would be raising teenage girls, and I remember thinking how much he reminded me of Chuck Yeager. Well, the Chuck Yeager character played by Sam Shepard in the movie The Right Stuff. The morning of the accident, there was already a pall over Fairchild Air Force Base. Just a week prior, a lone gunman had entered the Fairchild Hospital with an AK-47 and killed five Air Force members and injured 23 others before being shot and killed by a responding security police officer. In fact, it was my understanding that Sarah Holland, Bud's wife, was working in the hospital at the time the shooting began. After some discussion and debate on the matter, it was decided by the base's leadership that Fairchild's annual Aerospace Day air show would go on as scheduled, to aid in the healing process of the personnel still at the base. That meant, of course, that pilots who would be performing in the show needed their practice, and that included Bud Holland. Lieutenant Colonel Holland was known as a dangerously aggressive flyer, considered so undisciplined that many crewmen refused to fly with him. But with 22 years in the Air Force and a phenomenal 5,038.3 hours flying B-52s specifically, his superiors were often willing to overlook those infractions of flight safety rules, letting him off with verbal reprimands instead. Holland had a reputation in the Strategic Air Command as a hot stick, which is a highly skilled pilot who pushes aircraft to their limits. At the 1992 Aerospace Day at Fairchild, he made a low-level runway pass, then put his B-52 into a steep climb and performed a wing-over before a huge crowd of spectators. The aerial maneuver, known to stunt pilots in much smaller planes as a hammerhead, caused so much stress on the enormous B-52 that the fuselage popped around 500 rivets and fuel flowed from the vent holes on top of the wing tanks. On another occasion, Holland put his B-52 into what's called a death spiral over one of his daughter Heather's high school softball games. 
Then, three months before the crash at Fairchild, while flying at the Yakima bombing range, he buzzed a photographic crew atop a ridgeline, clearing the top by an estimated 3 to 20 feet, depending on which online account you're reading. His co-pilot on that flight claimed that he had to wrestle control of the craft away from Holland. Fellow service members said they'd often heard Bud talking about wanting to execute a complete rollover of a B-52 in flight. That's something that had never been done before. Bud wanted to be the first one to do it. It's for these reasons that fellow pilot and commander of the 325th Bomb Squadron, Lieutenant Colonel Mark McGeehan, nearly 10 years Holland's junior, demanded that Holland be grounded. McGeehan was overruled multiple times. So when Holland was subsequently assigned to pilot Fairchild's last B-52H for the 1994 air show, McGeehan did the only thing he could and refused to allow any of his subordinates to fly with Holland. So McGeehan, and this is the only part of the story that I don't understand, McGeehan is the only officer who tried to stop Holland, but instead ends up as his co-pilot? McGeehan is described in multiple accounts as the true hero of this story, but if he wouldn't let his subordinates fly with Holland, why on earth would he board the plane himself? If anyone listening to this has any insight into that aspect, please shoot me an email at eric, E-R-I-C-H, at washingtonourhome.com. I'd really appreciate that. I still can't wrap my brain around why McGeehan, who wouldn't let his subordinates fly with Holland, would voluntarily step into the pilot's seat with him. That doesn't make any sense to me. Also manning the fateful flight that day were Lieutenant Colonel Ken Houston, age 41, the 325th's operations officer, who took the position of radar navigator, and Colonel Robert Wolfe, the 41-year-old vice commander of the 92nd Bomb Wing, who outranked the other three members. Ironically, he joined the flight as a safety observer. Now let's quickly talk about the plane these men were piloting that day. The Boeing B-52 Stratofortress was America's first long-range, swept-wing heavy bomber. Introduced in 1954, it replaced the World War II-era Boeing B-29 Superfortress and was primarily designed to carry nuclear weapons. B-52s were used extensively during the Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War in 1991, and over in Afghanistan in 2001. The Stratofortress, also known as a Buff, B-U-F-F, which stood for Big Ugly Fat Fellow, even though the last word varied depending on who was using the acronym, originally carried a six-man crew consisting of an aircraft commander-slash-pilot, co-pilot, navigator, radar navigator-slash-bombardier, and electronics warfare officer and tail gunner. But on training and proficiency flights, the number of crew members often varied. The most significant difference between the B-52H and the earlier B-52 Stratofortresses is the replacement of the eight Pratt & Whitney J-57 series turbojet engines with eight Pratt & Whitney Turbo Wasp turbofan engines, which are significantly more efficient, quieter, and they don't emit as much dark smoke from the turbojets. Fairchild Air Force Base was originally built in 1942 to repair Boeing B-17 flying fortresses and B-24 Liberator bombers during World War II. With the end of the Cold War, the Air Force changed Fairchild's mission from B-52s to a base for Boeing KC-135 stratotankers, essentially flying gas stations. On July 1, 1994, Fairchild became the nation's largest aerial refueling facility and home to the 92nd Air Refueling Wing. The B-52H Stratofortress, tail number 61-0026, 
Call sign Czar 52 was the last of seven B-52s at Fairchild, and it had been reassigned to Minot, North Dakota Air Force Base. It was, unfortunately, the only one that didn't make the trip to the Midwest. On Friday, June 24, 1994, Tsar 52 was flying in tandem with a KC-135, slowly circling the airfield and making flybys down the runway. Occasionally, the bomber climbed steeply to a thousand feet, then executed a wing over and descended, its eight jet engines dramatically trailing smoke. At 2.16 p.m., the pilot of the KC-135 finished practicing his airshow maneuvers and landed his aircraft. Tsar 52 continued flying down the runway at a low altitude and executed a missed approach, or go-around maneuver, because the KC-135 was still on the runway. Approaching the runway's end, the plane climbed steeply and banked left into a tight 360-degree turn around the back of the air traffic control tower. At an altitude of just 250 feet off the ground, and keep in mind the B-52's wingspan is 185 feet, Holland put the bomber into a nearly 90-degree left bank. As he approached the 270-degree point of the turn, Tsar 52's wings went beyond the 90-degree point. Holland added power, but no amount of power could keep the B-52 in the air at that point. The bomber simply fell out of the sky, smashing into the ground with a 95-degree angle of bank and traveling at about 170 miles per hour. Lieutenant Colonel McGeehan fired his ejection seat at the last second, but did not escape before impact. All four officers were killed. Before the aircraft hit the ground, Tsar 52 narrowly missed a three-story brick building housing the Air Force Survival School, where some 300 students, instructors, and staff members were enjoying a farewell party for their squadron commander. About 50 people, including children, were outside on the school grounds watching the planes practice. The tip of the left wing clipped a set of power transmission lines just before it hit the ground, only 50 feet from the base's underground nuclear weapons storage area, scattering wreckage over five acres. Fortunately, no one on the ground was killed or injured. Within minutes, emergency crews and rescue teams were on scene to fight the immense fire. It took them nearly three hours to extinguish the flames from the crash. As they dug through the wreckage, a pervasive pall of toxic black smoke, stinking of aviation fuel and burned rubber hung in the air. Pockets of fire continued to erupt as oxygen reached volatile hotspots in the rubble. It took rescue workers nearly five hours, sifting through charred debris, to find the remains of the aircraft's four crew members. Once the fire and rescue teams were finished, the crash site was secured by Air Force security police to await the arrival of accident investigators from other bases. The next day, accident investigators combed through the blackened wreckage, looking for clues to why the 89-ton bomber crashed. Parts of the fuselage were strewn about five acres wide, with most wreckage concentrated into a smaller area about one-half mile from the airstrip pavement and south of the base control tower. The only recognizable part of the unarmed B-52H Stratofortress was the skeletal remains of the stabilizer, jutting about 15 feet off the ground and looming over the rest of the devastation. The nearby weapons storage area, a top-secret facility that once contained part of America's nuclear arsenal, was guarded by the detachment of Air Force Security Police, who arrived on scene almost immediately after the crash, just outside the perimeter fence to establish a security zone. 
On September 28, 1994, the Air Force Accident Investigations Board released the results of its investigation, which blamed the accident on the pilot, who had been practicing unauthorized and unsafe maneuvers. On the day of the crash, Holland ignored the safety rules yet again, this time resulting in the deaths of four high-ranking Air Force officers and the loss of an iconic aircraft worth between $54 and $74 million. The board also criticized Fairchild's chain of command for approving the aerobatics and permitting Holland to continue flying, despite a three-year pattern of reckless behavior and poor airmanship. In the official U.S. Air Force Aircraft Accident Investigation Board report, which is AFR 110-14, the list of regulations and technical orders violated by Lieutenant Colonel Holland on his 18-minute flight takes up three full pages. Since the time of the accident, this particular mishap is often used as a teaching tool with military personnel, like at the United States Air Force Academy, in the importance of complying with safety procedures and correcting or reporting the behavior of anybody who disregards safety regulations. It's one of the primary reasons why my original blog post about Bud Holland has so much web traffic to this day, because each year a new class of cadets in both the United States and UK Air Forces learn the story of rogue pilot Bud Holland and the leadership and culture that failed to prevent the tragedy from happening. Many of those young pilots find my post and leave thoughtful and occasionally thoughtless comments on the thread. We'll get into those next. Taking a break from some of this serious subject matter, we're going to talk about trivia because we have a new trivia segment right here in the middle of these Washington Our Home podcasts. This time I decided it was going to be about aviation questions, since that seemed fitting with today's theme. So I've got five questions lined up, actually six, because I did include a bonus question. So listen carefully, and I'll have answers for you at the end of this podcast, okay? Here is question number one. Where in Washington can you find a collection of Pratt and Whitney engines from the 1920s? There is a collection in Washington State. It exists at a museum somewhere in Washington. Which museum houses that collection of Pratt & Whitney engines. And you remember Pratt & Whitney engines were the exact same engines that were used on the B-52 Stratofortress. All right, question number two. What Washington company was founded in 1916 under the name Pacific Aero Products? This one should be a pretty easy one for anybody familiar with Washington state history. Question number three. The Boeing 747 airplane has approximately how many parts? Now, I know that's going to be a very difficult one to nail down if you're just shooting in the dark. So try to guess a round number and imagine how big a 747 is and how many parts it might have. Okay? How many parts approximately in a Boeing 747? Question number four. Which astronaut from Washington State died in the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion? That seems pretty easy to me, but who knows? Anybody listening to this podcast may not be as familiar with Washington State history as I am. So which astronaut from Washington State died in the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion? And I have a bonus question for that one. Which elementary school was renamed to honor that astronaut? That's a follow-up bonus question for that one. Finally, question number five. And this one's a little bit trickier, but I think somebody's going to get this one. What stayed aloft for 8 hours and 52 minutes without power in 1933 here in Washington State. 
I suppose that could apply to anything. It could be a bird, it could be a plane, it could be a helicopter. Well, 1933, probably not a helicopter. But there are a lot of things that could have stayed aloft for 8 hours and 52 minutes. I'll give you a little bit of a clue. It is a man-made product that was developed and was able to stay aloft in the air for 8 hours and 52 minutes without power as early as 1933. If you think you have the answer... Hang on to the end of the podcast to find out. Okay, back to the life and death of U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Bud Holland. Family man, gifted B-52 pilot, and, according to some of the comments my blog post received, murderous, suicidal psychopath. I wrote the article back in 2014, and to date it's received 59 comments, We're going to take a look at a choice few. Let's start with Mary Rose Campbell, who claims she dated Bud off and on throughout high school. She wondered what caused him to change from the extraordinary person she used to know to someone who habitually put himself in danger. She wonders if maybe he was made a scapegoat for some of the Air Force's cultural shortcomings that led to that disaster. Artemis Grosvenor says, Sympathy for the guilty is treason to the innocent. Nobody owes Bud Holland any tears. Save them for the other three fine officers who, through no fault of their own, got dragged into Bud Holland's personal death spiral. Thanks for that, Artemis. There's very little doubt that he was also guilty of those other things you mentioned, but the purpose of my article was neither to vilify him or to whitewash the incident. In fact, to the contrary, I think his story can be an example of how all of us make decisions, for better or for worse, that affect other people every day. Even those who make poor choices are nothing more than human. A user named DDS, I wonder if he's a dentist, hmm, says it sounds like Holland was a psychopath at worst and a sadist at best. David Hook responds to DDS by saying he was neither. He was an example of the narcissistic personality disorder. These individuals occur in all walks of life. DDS says they had a prime minister who was a fine example, obviously a comment from one of our friends across the pond. User William called Bud a murderer who killed his uncle. He must be related to one of the other colonel or lieutenant colonels who perished in the accident. User Bill, probably not the same person as the aforementioned William, shares things he's read about Bud, like how he would deliberately and repeatedly park his private vehicle in a marked fire lane near the headquarters building, or how he'd make his crew members stand in open bomb bays of B-52s while dropping bombs over Guam. Now, I can't confirm any of this, but it does fit with Bud's professional persona. Perhaps unprofessional persona is a more appropriate term. I agreed with Bill that Bud was not a monster or a murderer, as some have claimed. Rather, he was, as Bill said, a decent guy outside of work, but an accident waiting to happen on the job. We get a different perspective from Irino Evangelista de Souza who actually considers Bud Holland as a hero, victimized by incompetent or fearful people, saying Bud was cut to lead a nuclear warhead right to the heart of Moscow in the event of failure in the ICBM systems. Steve M. bristles quite a bit at D'Souza's opinion, using a few choice words I won't repeat here, and following with his opinion that Holland should have been mandatorily retired, if not stripped of his rank, court-martialed, and dishonorably discharged. This comment was interesting. User AAVC Law posted that this is a case study at WHINSEC, W-H-I-N-S-E-C, which is the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. I had to look it up. 
They teach it in Spanish to international and local officers about how a lack of leadership can take you to tragedy. When they were studying and discussing the case, this user tried to act as the role of Bud's attorney, but he found there was no way that he could possibly get this guy off the hook. Eugene Warmoth firmly believes Mr. Holland was one of the best pilots to fly. However, to achieve that status, Holland took risks and pushed both planes and colleagues to the edge. Eugene also believes that Holland's senior commanders got many accolades on his performance behind closed doors, and they wanted this man to fly under their supervision. Here's a bit of levity for this unintentionally polarizing topic. User Michael posted that I should amend the title of my article from Remembering Bud Holland, He Flew B-52s, to Remembering Bud Holland, He Flew B-52s, but not very well. Tim Baxter follows that up with an all-caps tirade saying things like, Rock on, Colonel Holland. I'm not even going to play nice with you armchair nobodies. You're all worthless, weak, powdered, donut-eating, soggy-born cornflakes. Okay. He goes on to say, Don't you think if the Russians knew every one of our guys was a crazy mofo with skills to fly high and low and faster and upside down and backward, and they were all coming for their hometowns with bombers full of boom-boom that they wouldn't pluck around at all? Tim Baxter goes on to make a few other cogent points, but they're unfortunately entirely drowned out by the wacky rhetoric surrounding them. Peter Orphanidis follows that diatribe by saying, Prior to my article, he was convinced that Holland was basically a psychopath in uniform. But upon reading the details of my article, it definitely shows that he was most likely a narcissistic personality with authority issues. User Gus chimes in and thinks that I was remembering Bud Holland the way that other people remember Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy as good, kind people. I had to respond to that one by saying his comparison of Bud Holland to serial killers Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy was just ludicrous hyperbole. Those men killed because they were either psychologically imbalanced or murderously evil, depending on which explanation you subscribe to these days, while Bud Holland was simply irresponsible, foolish, and arrogant. There is clearly a mile's difference between the two. Holland didn't go up there that day, hell-bent on ending the lives of his fellow pilots. He wasn't plotting for weeks, which men he was going to lure into his suicide mission. He went to show off his remarkable flying skills, like he always did, and he always got away with it. Except this time, his luck finally ran out. User Metal Goddess comes to my defense as well, saying, For those who criticize the author for writing an article based on his having actually known the guy, people are multifaceted, and they present various faces of themselves to various people. Americans have this black-and-white mentality where people either have to be saints or devils, and there can be nothing in between. People like that just don't exist. Well, she's right. And I'm going to close with David Knight's comment, because he also thanks me for writing the article. He says it's an interesting insight to Bud Holland, the family man. There are always myriad sides to every story, and I appreciate his correct use of myriad, but it is good to listen and learn from all sides. This accident to me is such a terrible tragedy for everyone involved, including Bud's own family. It must be so sad for them to know that the man who was their husband and father will always be remembered the way he is now, while they, like I, remember him in an entirely different light. David Knight says thanks again for a little balance in this terrible tragedy. I hope you all learned a little something from that episode. If not, go out and read a book called Darker Shades of Blue, A Case Study of Failed Leadership by Major Anthony T. Kern. It's highly recommended for its insight into this tragedy and other tragedies, and you can get it on Amazon. I'll put a link 
to the purchase in the episode description. And I want to give a special thanks to the websites historylink.org, thisdayinaviation.com, theaviationgeekclub.com, check6.com, and KXLY News, which did a very thorough retrospective uh, video clip that you can find on YouTube. I'll also have that in the episode description. Time to close out with the answers to your trivia questions. Question number one, where in Washington can you find a collection of Pratt and Whitney engines from the 1920s? Of course, that would be the Museum of Flight in South Seattle. Question number two, what Washington company was founded in 1916 under the name Pacific Aero Products? This one should have been easy. The Boeing Company, of course. And question three, the Boeing 747 airplane has approximately how many parts? The answer, not one, not two, but six million parts on a Boeing 747. All right, question number four. Which astronaut from Washington State died in the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion? That would be Francis Dick Scobie. Although you may have thought it was a trick question, since Washington State school teacher Krista McAuliffe also died in that explosion, she, unfortunately, was not an astronaut. The bonus question, which elementary school was renamed to honor Dick Scobie? That would be North Auburn Elementary School. And final question number five. What stayed aloft for eight hours and 52 minutes without power in 1933? It was a 50-foot sailplane, also known as a glider, called the Yakima Clipper, built by Yakima native Charles McAllister. That plane has been on display since 1987 at, where else? Boeing's Museum of Flight in Seattle. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And hit me up on social media. You can find Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's lots of great video content on YouTube. And if you're looking for scenic pictures from around the state, look no further than our Flickr and Pinterest pages. My name is Eric Ebel. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.